Acts 26. Acts 26, and we are going to read verses 1 through 20. 1 through 20 this morning. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison and received, after receiving authority from the chief priests, but then when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a gift and a joy it is to have your word. And what a blessing it is to see you work through so many years ago through a difficult time in Paul's life, a difficult time in the church, through messy government and sinful people and get exactly what you want. Father, we rejoice that you are sovereign and good and your plan is perfect. And we rejoice that even when things are dark and difficult, that you still give us hope. 
You don't leave us floundering and wondering what you're doing. You give us joy and peace and hope, and you're with us in the difficulty. Pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word this morning to give us that lasting hope that only the resurrection brings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guilty. It's quite a word, isn't it? I've never had that pronounced over me in court. But I can imagine it would be pretty gut-wrenching to hear. I mean, in front of a jury and a judge and witnesses and your lawyer and maybe the prosecutor, just to have that, that gavel come down and to hear the word pronounced over you as guilty. Now, it's, it's no secret that as we've been going through the end of Acts, that is the exact goal of the Jews. They're spending every effort and every ounce of energy to see that Paul is declared of guilty. Guilty of blasphemy. Guilty of disgracing God and profaning the temple. And they don't just want to see him declared as guilty. They want to see him suffer the sentence of death. But time and time again, every time they bring their their issues, their charges, they bring it before a Roman governor. And Paul brings his case, presents his case. It's clear to everybody, he's not guilty. Every single time, nothing sticks. Yet, time and time again, they won't let him go. They keep him in prison to to keep the Jews happy or to get a bribe or or just to make sure that there's no more riots. And this, this innocent man has been behind bars for more than two years with no end in sight. I don't know about you, but if, if that was me, I think I would be going insane. I mean, I already, dealing with foster care, I have a little faith in the system sometimes. And so to see this happen again and again would be exhausting. I would lose hope in, in maybe the, the system, the Jews, maybe even the church, and maybe in God. God, what are you doing? Don't you want more churches planted? Don't you have a plan? Didn't you want me to go to Rome? I thought that's what you wanted to do. And I would lose hope so quickly because it seems like God's plan is is stalled. Yet when we see this last trial, when Paul is called out to testify again uh, in front of a king, he's not despairing. He's not depressed. He has profound hope even in the midst of these circumstances. Where does that hope come from? Where where is that hope grounded? And can we share that hope? Because to be honest, if if we're paying attention in this world, it's easy to lose hope, isn't it? I mean, just watch the news for five minutes. Look, Look into your heart. Just examine the words and the thoughts that come out of that heart, and you will lose hope quickly. So where does Paul get this hope? This sustaining hope. That's the question I want to answer today as we read this text. Where does this hope come from? But before we do that, we have to remember where we are in Acts. Of course, we know this is the Acts, not of the apostles, not of just the church, but this is the Acts of the risen Lord. We've been talking about that for some time. And it's the risen Lord's work through the Spirit, through the apostles, as he continues to build the church. And in this last phase of Acts, we see Paul, after his missionary journeys, we see Paul on trial. And time and time again, we see Paul's mission and his message on trial. Now, if you remember, this whole mess started in Acts chapter 21. When Paul came home from his third missionary journey, he came back to town, and in order to appease the Jews and to make peace when he got back to Jerusalem, 
He goes into the temple and he does all the rituals that he thought would make them happy. And when he gets done, he's declared a blasphemy. That he brought a Jew or a Gentile into the temple and that he disgraced the temple. And a riot breaks out and he's arrested. And from then on, we have trial after trial after trial. And today's the last one. Chapter 23 before the Jewish court. Chapter 24 before Felix. Chapter 25 before the new governor Festus. And then chapter 26 before King Agrippa. Well, last week in chapter 25, uh, Jason introduced us to this new governor, Festus. Now, if you remember, Felix was the governor um, over Caesarea, which is where Paul was in prison for a long time. And he just let Paul stay in jail for two years until he was replaced by Festus, and then it became Festus' problem. And then Festus says, well, okay, we got to figure out what to do with Paul. So he hears Paul's case. Paul makes his defense once again and says, you know what? Maybe you want to go back to Jerusalem. That'll make the Jews happy. And Paul says, no way. I know what's awaiting me. They're going to kill me on the way. And I've already had that trial. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm in the right place. I'm in the right court. And if you won't give that to me, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And so that's what he did. And Festus kind of liked that idea because then he could wipe his hands and say, all right, you're going to Caesar. But then that created another problem for Festus. He couldn't just let Paul go. The Jews would be angry at him in his first you know, months in office. But he couldn't just send Paul off to Rome without any charges, which he clearly didn't have. So what is he going to do? Well, lucky for him, or more providentially for him, uh, God brought King Agrippa into the scene. And King Agrippa is, is also kind of like a governor as well. And King Agrippa decides to give Festus some advice, and that's exactly what we see starting in verse 1. So let's read the, the setup to this scene in verse 1 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul, you have the floor. Go for it. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Remember, this is is a defense um, of not just the gospel. It is. But remember, Paul's life is on the line every time he does this. His ministry, all of his work, his message, and his very life will be forfeit if he loses this. So there's a lot at stake here. And he, he starts with some kind words, just as we typically have seen in verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Now you think that this might be flattery? Because we've heard that, right? Felix and all these other people, they've tried to be nice to their, their judge to try to get some benefit from that. But this is, this is not flattery from Paul. He's, he means this. And here's how we know that. Look at verse 3. Especially because you, King Agrippa, are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. So he's saying, Agrippa, you're the one I need to talk to. You know Rome. You're a governor in Rome. But you also know the Jews. And you know how the president has uh, you know, advisors in his cabinet that might be experts in Islam or Christianity. Well, Agrippa essentially was the Roman governor that was expert in all things Jewish. He was the perfect guy to hear Paul's case and to be as neutral as possible. And the reason why he was an expert is because he was a Jew himself. Now, he wasn't a very good practicing Jew. He came here with his sister, Bernice, which seems like they had some kind of incestuous affair. He was loyal to Rome to his last days. And you remember his family, don't you? The Herods, they're notorious for so many horrible things. 
This is Herod Agrippa II, but Herod the Great, this guy's grandfather, he was the one responsible for killing all the two-year-olds around Jesus' birth, beheading John the Baptist. And then his father, Herod Agrippa I, was the one who arrested Peter and killed the apostle James. So not a good reputation against the church, but a decent reputation with the Jews. And this Herod Agrippa II was currently the ruler over Israel. He was in charge of of appointing the high priest. He was the, the curator of the temple. So this is the man that Paul needs to talk to. This is the man that could give him a fair trial. So look what he says at the end of verse 3. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. That should be a parent's favorite verse, right? Listen to me patiently. Um, why is why is he saying that? It's kind of a weird thing to, to add in there. But the reason why he's saying, look, Agrippa, I can go into depth here in a way that I couldn't with Felix and Festus. I can go into the history and the, con- the controversies of the Jews like I couldn't with them because you're going to get it. So hang in there. It'll be worth it. And then Paul begins his defense in verse 4. And this defense continues from verse 4 all the way to the end of the chapter. And we're going to spend two weeks on this defense. There's a lot packed in here. And it's, it's different. Even though he's given this defense many times, it's a little different. And there's many things that come out. But his defense is still the same. His defense, even after two years in prison, hasn't changed. There is one thing and one thing only that is central to his hope and central to his defense. That's the reason he has hope in prison. And it's the hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the foundation of his hope. It's the hope in the risen Lord. That's the lens by which we have to see this entire passage, really this entire word of God and the entire Christian faith. It's the key to what it means to be a Christian. And so as we walk through this defense about the hope of the resurrection, I want to draw out two points today. And here are the two points. We can't understand the controversies surrounding Paul apart from the resurrection. We can't understand these controversies, and Agrippa can't understand these controversies apart from the resurrection. And then number two, we can't understand Paul's conversion. Yes, they're both C's, because I know alliteration is next to godliness, right? Uh, They're both C's, so we can't understand the controversies or Paul's conversion apart from the resurrection. That'll be our focus this week. So, what controversies? We can't understand the controversies apart from the resurrection. Well, of course we mean the trials, the the back and forth with the Jews, Paul's defense, those controversies. Well, at the center of that controversy is the resurrection. The Jews miss it. They don't get what's really going on, but Paul has been about the resurrection over and over and over again. And it didn't just start in his trial. It started way back when in his ministry. I mean, flip back to Acts 17. Keep your finger in Acts 26. Acts 17, in one of his missionary journeys when he was in Thessalonica with Silas. Acts 17, verse 2. Listen to what Paul says as he preaches. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse 3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. You see, all of Paul's sermons are essentially the same. 
It's, it's the one string on his guitar. It's the one tune that he plays. Kind of like if you have a, a, a child learning a musical instrument. When they play, when the saints go marching in one, two times, it's kind of cute. But the 5,000th time, you're like, come on, let's play something different. That's, that's Paul. He's always about the resurrection. No matter what, when he's reasoning from scriptures, he's about the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again. Look at his first trial in verse in chapter 23, a couple more pages over. You would think maybe when his life is on the line that something would change, but no. Paul is right back to the resurrection. Chapter 23, verse 6. This is before the Jewish council. Verse 6 and 23. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. See, it's about the resurrection again. Chapter 24. This time before Felix. Chapter 24, 14 says to Felix, but I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And then look down at verse 20 in chapter 24. Paul continues, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, this is the one thing that really matters, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. It's all about the resurrection, isn't it? You know what's amazing? The Jews miss that over and over and over again. But then look at chapter 25. Festus gets it. Festus hears Paul and Festus figures it out. He figures out what the real issue is. He's, he's a good judge. 25 verse 18. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Festus gets it. This, this pagan gets it. It's about the resurrection this whole time. And so what do we see today in chapter 26? Before the king, does Paul change his tune? Look at verse 6, chapter 26. Now to Agrippa, and now I stand here on trial because I defiled the temple. No. Because I blasphemed. No. I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. What hope, Paul? What are you talking about? Verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Don't you just love this? Paul cuts right to the chase. Like, Agrippa, blasphemy, all those charges are serious. I know that my life is on the line, but look, you need to know, none of that matters. None of that matters. The only thing that we need to talk about today, the biggest issue that's going on here, is the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. That's what we have to deal with, Agrippa. The only difference between them is, I believe Jesus rose, and they don't. That's what Paul's saying. You know, it's not like the Jews didn't believe in a resurrection. 
Not like they didn't believe in a resurrection in a general sense. I mean, their own scriptures, Isaiah 25 says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Isaiah 26, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. Who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. That is the hope of the Jews. That they will one day be resurrected. And they also had a a hope that the, the... the Messiah would come. That Genesis 3 hoped that the seed of the woman would come and fix everything. Who would be the son of Abraham. Who would be that long-awaited Davidic king. And even today, if you go to Jerusalem, they still share that hope. I know some of you have been to Jerusalem. If you, if you go to that wailing wall, you will see Jew after Jew piling to that wall, praying for what? The hope to come. That Messiah would come and set everything right. That God would come and resurrect the dead. That God would come and, and give life to the dead. That would conquer sin and death and all of those things Paul has in common with the Jews. He has the same hope, the same expectation. But here's the one difference. The only reason they're arguing is because Paul has a different fulfillment of that hope. And that's what Paul is trying to get Agrippa to understand. Agrippa, you can't get these controversies. You can't understand what's going on unless you see the hope of the resurrection fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now the best way I can think to illustrate this difference for you is with a story from John 11. Now you don't have to turn there. Let me just tell you the story. I think you're familiar with it probably. The story of Lazarus raising from the dead. It's hard to forget, right? It's an amazing story. And if you remember though, there's more at work than just Lazarus in that story. Remember Martha, Lazarus' brother or sister? Uh, that would be weird, but yeah, Lazarus' sister. Uh, Martha was, was actually pretty annoyed at Jesus. She sent word days before uh, Lazarus died that Jesus, Lazarus is sick, your friend is sick, come help. Do you remember what Jesus did? He delayed. He didn't go. And by the time he got there, Lazarus was dead. Well, Martha comes out on the road to meet with Jesus. And she's got some words for him. And you remember what she said? She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus said, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, yeah, yeah, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. What's she talking about? Well, she's talking about that Jewish hope, that resurrection in the last day, that hope that the Messiah would come and fix everything or that God would at least raise the dead one day. But Jesus won't leave it there, will he? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says, do you believe that, Martha? We're not going to leave this resurrection in the general sense. You need to know that I am your hope. The only reason that Lazarus is coming out of that grave in just a few minutes is because Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the fulfillment of that great hope. And that's Paul's argument. That's his whole argument, is that it's fulfilled in Christ. That's the hope that sustains him. That's the hope he's trying to get Agrippa to understand that the Jews don't get. You can't understand these controversies without understanding the hope of the resurrection in Jesus Christ. And I would argue today that it's still true. You can't understand Christianity 
or our controversies of our days apart from the hope of the resurrection in Jesus Christ. I know you hear that and you're probably like, that's, that's an exaggeration. That, really? I, when I'm on social media, I don't see the resurrection up for debate. Only around Easter, right? But it's always about marriage or creation or, or all these other issues. But it, resurrection doesn't come up that much. But think about it for a second. When all those arguments are happening, what's going on there? Are they really even arguments most of the time? Are they more opinions about, I don't really like this, so this might be the case, or I think this is good, or this is probably true because it feels better, or it's right. Especially in our day, that's the way that most arguments happen, right? But if it's true that Jesus lives, if Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, he's the boss. He calls the shots. He is the Lord of glory. Which means everything he said and everything he did is no longer up for debate. Everything he said and did, we submit to. He affirmed the scriptures. He taught his disciples. He trained them and the Holy Spirit indwelled them. And so this, the word of God, is our authority. It's not something to be considered anymore. To be debated anymore. Yes, we have struggles and we try to understand it, but we know that there is a clear meaning in Scripture and the resurrection makes that possible. The resurrection is how we have to understand everything. I love how Tim Keller puts this. He says this about Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything of what he said? Listen to this. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if Jesus lives, he's not just a a dead carpenter, some guy who taught some interesting stuff back in the days and caused some issues and should be considered or talked about. If Jesus lives, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If Jesus lives, he is the fulfillment of everything the prophets prophets talked about in the Old Testament. He is the hope of Israel. He's the prophet, priest, and king we've all been waiting for. He is the seed of the woman. He is the promised son of Abraham. He is the Davidic king forever. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is Lord, period. Let us not mock God by saying the resurrection is nothing more than just just a metaphor. No thank you, Rob Bell and, and Oprah. How can it be a metaphor? Let's not mock God by saying, no, it's just, it's just wishful thinking. The disciples wanted Jesus back so, so bad that they just met somewhere and, and pinky swore to take this lie to the grave. It doesn't make any sense when 11 of them died for this, taking this lie to the grave. No, the Bible is clear. The evidence is there. There's an empty tomb and hundreds of eyewitnesses. Paul talks about that in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Go talk to them. They're still alive, most of them. See if they say that the resurrection happened. And then later on in this very chapter, Paul says something to Agrippa that I love. He says, look, Agrippa, none of this was done in a corner. None of this was done in the shadows, which is so different from every other world religion out there, isn't it? How does every other world religion start? Someone receives a, a private word from the Lord, a private revelation, and they write it down and they say, here, look, this is from the Lord. Well, how do I trust it? Oh, just trust me. So different, right? Christianity is a public religion. 
It's a public ministry by Jesus, a public death, a public burial, and public appearances. And then the public goes around and tells everybody what they heard and what they saw. Well, the evidence is there. It's not easy to believe that someone rose from the dead. It still requires faith, but it's the most rational, reasonable, plausible response based on what we know. Jesus lives. And if that's true, that changes everything. If that's true, the only proper response is to trust and obey. Agrippa, you can't understand Paul's controversies, our controversies. You really can't understand Christianity apart from the resurrection. And point number two, you can't understand Paul's conversion apart from the resurrection. Now, we are going to go through a lot more Scripture this time because we're going to cover a lot next week. So hang in there. I'm going to skip a lot of details, but it'll be worth it, I promise. As we go through Paul's conversion, which we've seen before, what I want to point your attention to is the change that happens. Look at what happens. Look who Paul was. Look who he became. And he starts that in verse 4 with his religious credentials. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. Just funny he says that because they're right there. He's like, just ask them. They're right around me. They've known it for a long time, if they are willing to testify. There it is again. That according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Look, Paul's saying, look, everybody knows my past. I was an Orthodox Jew. I was conservative. I was trained by the best teachers in the best schools. I was essentially what we would think of as, as a fundamentalist, as maybe a Puritan. When, when people talked about theology, I wasn't the guy cutting the corners. I mean, Paul would have been the guy voted most likely to succeed in Pharisee school if they had that. He would have been the, the LeBron James of Pharisees. There's your sports illustration for you. Right? If, if that was such a thing. In fact, you know, the, the only way I could comprehend this in, in an understandable way, especially for our town, is to, to liken this to the way that small, town, uh, small towns treat athletes that are really good. And in Bakersfield, it seems to be the case that the one that always comes to mind is, is Derek Carr. Sorry, David, if you're here, but Derek is, is someone that, when I was at BCHS, he was there a long time ago and never had him in class, but... Um, but I still hear from students and parents and, and so many people that, do you remember when Derek was here? Do you remember him playing on the field? Do you remember when he played the teams that we played? It was like a grown man playing with boys. It was ridiculous how good he was, right? I knew, I knew that even back then, he was going to make it big one day. I knew that something was going to happen in his life. Well, that idea that that athletic ideas of what's happening to Paul theologically. People were saying, do you remember Paul? Do you remember how smart he was? Do you remember how much he knew the scriptures? How holy he was? I knew it. He was going to be big one day. He was going to make a difference one day. And Paul is saying, just ask them. They'll tell you that. But then Paul says, look, I wasn't just committed to theology, to orthodoxy. I was also committed to taking out anything that stood in the way of the Jews. And that would be the church. Look at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I had to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem 
not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they, put, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persuaded them, or I persecuted them to foreign cities. Paul is essentially saying here that, look, I wasn't just a Jewish fundamentalist. I was a Jewish terrorist. I wasn't content calling out their error from afar. I wasn't content in bad-mouthing them. I had to go and take them out. I was willing to kill for this. And he even says at the end, I wanted to make them blaspheme. And he didn't see it as blasphemy back then. But looking back on it now, I was trying to make them disgrace their Lord. To disgrace the God of the universe. Have you ever stopped to think about how scary and crazy Saul was? If there was an enemy of the church like that today, it would just be, it'd be terror to be in the room with him. And I'm sure as Paul says these things, there's a lot of guilt, sorrow. I mean, I wonder when he says these words about casting votes to kill people, if Stephen comes to his mind. Or the many other people that he put in prison and destroyed their lives. And, and the many other people he had put to death. Paul's saying, that's who I was, Agrippa. But he says, that's not who I am now. Look at verse 12. Look at the change here. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus, and with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Oh, what an amazing story this is. Look, Paul, Paul was not looking to change sides here. He was not seeking the truth. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't a, a person of peace. He wasn't the kind of one seeking truth out there and trying to figure it all out and wanting to switch sides. No, Paul was actively seeking to destroy the church, to destroy the works of God. And Jesus knocks him off his horse, knocks him on his back and blinds him. He says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul doesn't argue back. He doesn't say, Lord, I wasn't persecuting you. I was persecuting your church. No, he humbly says, Lord, Lord, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. And Paul gets a glimpse of the resurrected Lord and everything changes. He sees that the hope of the resurrection is now alive. That Jesus is the hope of the resurrection. And he submits. He has faith. And then Jesus gives him a job. Look at verse 16. But rise, Paul. Stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those things in which I, I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul, get up. I have a job. I have a purpose for you now. Now that you are resurrected in this sense, I have a job for you. And look at verse 19. 
Paul says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Do you see Paul's argument here? Paul's saying, look, Agrippa, how else do you explain what happened to me? How else do you explain how I changed from a persecutor of the church to a preacher in the church without the resurrection? Look at who I was. I didn't change in in just slight ways. I didn't have a change in thinking or minor changes in behavior. I'm not the same person. I don't speak the same. I don't act the same. I don't think the same. I don't even want the same things. This is a complete conversion. A complete change, a complete transformation. How else do you explain that? What do you call that, Agrippa? Well, Paul calls it a resurrection. He actually calls that a resurrection in his epistles. Ephesians 2 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when you were dead, dead in our trespasses, made us alive with him, with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Romans 6, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul saying, Agrippa, do you know what happened here? Jesus is the Lord. He lived, He died, He rose again. He is the hope of all the nations. He's the fulfillment of all the promises. He lived for all the sinners out there that are dead in their sins, that are walking in darkness. He lived and died for them, paid the penalty for their sin, and those that are found in faith by Him can walk out of that darkness by faith. Those that are found in faith by Him can be resurrected from their spiritual deadness and resurrected from the physical death to come. Agrippa, He is the hope of the resurrection. He is the Lord of glory. He is what we've all been waiting for, Agrippa. And He is the one that changed Paul. There's no other way to explain it. And He is the one that changes us. I have a couple questions for you in terms of application. And one of them is directed at those that that call Jesus their Lord. Because just like we can't understand Paul's conversion apart from the resurrection? I want to ask you, can your life be understood apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ? When people look at your life, can they make sense of all that you do and all that you are if Jesus is still dead? If we found the bones of Jesus tomorrow, and it was irrefusable evidence, scientists confirmed, the church even looks at it and says, yep, these are Jesus' bones, he definitely didn't raise from the dead, how would you respond? Would be like, ah, it's no big deal. I still have my faith. Would you shrug your shoulders and like, oh, oh well, what time's work in the morning? Look, if nothing changes for you, if the bones of Jesus are found tomorrow, then probably nothing has changed in you. Do people need the resurrection to make sense of your life? Do they need the resurrection to make sense of the way that you spend your time? 
the way that you spend your money, the way that you interact with your family, to explain your values, the way you spend your money, your priorities? Do people need the resurrection to explain the way you spend your Sundays? The way you have hope, the way you worship, the peace that you have, the joy that you have. Do people need to see Jesus as alive to make sense of it all? Because Paul says, look, you can't make sense of anything in my life apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look who I was. Look who I am now. That only comes because Jesus is risen from the dead. And in Him I am risen from the dead. None of it makes sense apart from Jesus being alive. And that's exactly why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, look, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, I am of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, look, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then call this whole Christian thing off and go to Vegas. Really? It doesn't matter. You ever think how stupid this stuff is if Jesus is not risen from the dead? The the songs we sing about blood and sacrifice, come on, it's the 21st century. How crazy does that sound to the modern ear? How crazy is it to, to spend money to send people across the world risking their lives because we want to see a church someday? None of that makes sense. None of the the way we talk to our kids about God, the way we educate, none of it makes sense apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So can people make sense of your life apart from the resurrection? If not, repent. Recognize that if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Your life can look so much different than in the way it did before the resurrection. And that in Christ... We can take risks. We can do things like Paul because our hope is not in our own life, our own world, our own stuff. It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection to come. Look, if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you're here and maybe you came with a friend and you're just kind of considering what's going on here, I have a question for you as well. And it's really not that different. The question is, where do you find hope in this world? Where do you find peace? Where is your your source of joy? Because I think that if we're honest, we all pretty much want the same things. Some people are really passionate about food or sports or, or whatever, but deep down, we all want love, security, purpose. We want someone to make sense of suffering. We want somebody to make sense of life after death. Deep down, I think we all want to know that we're okay. Is it my job that tells me I'm okay? Is it my my parents that tell me I'm okay? Is it my grade that tells me I'm okay? We want someone outside of ourselves to confirm that we're okay. Well, what about Jesus? Would you listen to him? He rose from the dead. He is Lord. He lived and died. He preached the scriptures, confirmed the scripture. He is Lord over all, and he has a message for you, for all of us. You're not okay. You're not. All of us are born into sin. Born in sin and we follow that sin out and sin against God. We are in that state of rebellion. If we continue in that state of rebellion, if you continue in that state, you will be condemned for all of eternity. The only hope for sinners like you and I, like Paul, like Agrippa, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus lived in your place if you trust him. He paid the penalty for your sin. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that we might be free of that penalty. And He sends His Spirit to sanctify us, 
to change us, to resurrect us from that deadness. And He will resurrect us physically one day. What better solution could you possibly have? What better thing could there possibly be offered in this world? No, trust in Him. Trust in Him. He is the resurrected Lord. He is the only hope. And that's why we sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to have hope. In this world that scrambles for anything that can satisfy, anything that can bring lasting joy, and every time we grip something in this world, it just disappears. It's a vapor, Lord. And we know that in experience, but we also know that in Your Word, and we know that You are our hope. That Your Son sent so many years ago to live and die for us and to raise from the dead, that is our hope. And by faith, we are risen from the deadness of sin to new life. And by faith, one day we will be resurrected for all of eternity and have that final hope in You. God, help us to cling to that hope. Help us to repent of of clinging to this world in place of that hope and help us to see the resurrection as all we need. In Your precious name we pray. Amen.